Our God has been so wild lately. He doesn't seem to listen. He doesn't obey my commands, and we can't even bribe him with trees. He's gotten so out of hand, he may even have to be put down. God is not the problem here. The problem is the people who want to be the leader of the pack. We reintroduce God. We retrain people. You're listening to The God Whisperers. Hey, welcome to The God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio. And I'm Bill Swirla, and we're, we're ready to do another session of whisperings regarding God. Huh? Sounds good. If you uh, want to catch us on the, on the web and catch back episodes of The God Whispers, that is at godwhisperers.com. And if you want to email us for whatever reason, whether to uh, complain, criticize, offer a topic, ask a question, that would be at godwhisperers at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And, of course, you can listen to us on Pirate Christian Radio on Mondays and Thursdays at 4.30 p.m. Pacific, at least for now. We're, we're trying to scale that down to one day a week. And you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes as well. So uh, We are all over the place. We, we are everywhere. We, we are the most self-promoting jerks on the face of the earth. This, this is shameless self-promotion right here, <laughs> and all for six listeners. We are really thrilled. That's so. right. Our fan base is, is our wives. That's our <laughs> yeah. fan base. My, my wife hasn't listened to one of these yet. So what, what do you and Craig do uh, when, when you make these recordings? <laughs> uh, drink. is uh, Just sit around and drink. That's, that's what we do. Uh, so what are we going to talk about today, Bill? Well, we're going we're gonna to wrap up the Ten Commandments today with, with the close of the commandments, which is really taken from the first commandment, and then also the catechism summary of what that, what that means. Okay, so uh, I guess we'll open our catechisms and, and look into this. Uh, the close of the commandments. What does God say about all these commandments? What does he say? He says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And that, by the way, is Exodus 25 to 6. It's an expansion on the first commandment. Sounds good to me. What does that mean exactly? It means that God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. But he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands. This is interesting. We we read earlier in the Exodus passage that God is a jealous God and uh, reminds me of Oprah Winfrey. She she pretty much checked out of Christianity because her pastor was talking about this verse, God is a jealous God. And she said, well, he's jealous of me. Why would he be jealous of me? That's not much of a God. What does this really mean? It It, it doesn't make sense to a lot of people. What's he jealous of or who is he jealous of? Well, I think, first of all, you have to recognize the, the Hebrew word for jealous is also a word for zealous. Hmm. Uh, it's a coincidence that it rhymes. But but uh, the idea, you can't load in our idea of jealousy, whether the jealous lover or the, the one who's pathologically possessive. The, that's, not the, that's not what this passage has in mind with regard to God. God is not that kind of controlling, manipulative, possessive sort of uh, God. But he is zealous for his people. He's zealous for us. And his jealousy is really the flip side of his love. The hmm. first commandment says, you'll have no other gods in my presence or in my face. A God does not tolerate competition. And so uh, the record of the Old Testament is really the record of God uh, 
basically shoving away all competition for the affections of his people. He wants us all to himself. And him being our God alone is precisely what we need. Our idols are just going to kill us in the end and consume us, and God doesn't want that for us. So he's zealous for us. He's zealous for our salvation. He's zealous to have us all to himself, and that zeal is his jealousy. That's what makes him a jealous God. So this is really not just um, a precursor to the commandments, but it it also is the first commandment in and of itself that not even we are to be God before God. Yeah, well, you can see all the contours of the first command, or of all the commandments contained in this one. They all it all revolves around fear, love, and trust in God again. And so, mm. uh, just like we talked about in the first commandment. This idea of who God is for us and what he desires for us is he desires to be God alone for us and we to be exclusively his people and and to share us with no one. And it it was built around the the major confession of Israel, the the great Shema of of Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. It's not really the Lord is one, but the Lord alone. He's unique. There is no other. Israel has no other God. Indeed, the world has no other God. And uh, God wants to assert his uniqueness and aloneness and basically expose and destroy all idols that get in the way. So here we're, we're faced also in that same passage that, uh, I'm, I'm trying to find it here all of a sudden, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Yeah, or showing, literally my haters. Yeah, but showing the love for a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, a lot of people just focus on that third and fourth generation. Well, why, why is God going to hate the children of these people just because their parents were jerks? You well, know? It doesn't say he hates them. He says uh, he, that he visits the punishment of the fathers to the children for three and four generations. And the way I take this is this is the trickle-down effect of sin. Uh-huh. so that, that the sins of the fathers don't just end with the fathers, but they have echoes and ramifications all the way down from one generation to the next. Think of some of the common ones where, where uh, a child who grows up in a house, say, with abuse yeah. is going to have a very difficult time establishing an, an orderly household of his own or her own. Or somebody who grows up with alcoholism is going to always be oriented around that one way or another, uh, in their adult life, and possibly also even their children and even their grandchildren. Yeah, actually, that's interesting that you should bring up addiction and that sort of thing, because I've been told by psychologists that it takes about three generations to break a cycle of addiction in a family. Fascinating. Yeah, and and I always hearken back to this. Yeah, and, and I think what, what, uh, what the Scripture is saying here is that, that God doesn't leave us literally to get away with our sins. That, that there's a heavy hand that rests not only on us but on future generations, and it's all intended to bring us to Christ, to drive us to repentance, to despair of ourselves, mm. and to recognize that we need to hide from his wrath, that this is, this is not something to be trifled with, that God hates sin, and he, he insists that our obedience be perfect in every way, and that there is wrath that, that comes down upon disobedience uh, of the commandments.
By the way, speaking of, uh, how how'd you fare with the earthquake? That was yesterday. God's wrath. God's <laughs> wrath the, on Southern California. The earth isn't quite as stable as we always assume <laughs> that it is. You know, I, I was standing there at Pirate Christian Radio. I was getting a cup of water, and uh, it, w- it was interesting. You, you could sort out the, the sheep from the goats as to who's who's from California and who's not. Oh, that's always fun. <laughs> the, the, yes, the outsider, so, the outsider and the shake test. Yeah, so the ground starts to roll <laughs> and I'm standing there and at first I'm like I feel a little lightheaded and then I then I realize no, the earth is actually moving here. <laughs> and so I and all the girls are screaming earthquake, earthquake and Next to me is is one lady who's from California, and we're both just kind of standing there, like, "Oh, this isn't a bad one at all," because <laughs> down in San Juan Capistrano is just kind of rolling, no no real shaking, and uh, all the all the people from the East Coast and the Midwest they're running for cover and ducking under desks and running outside. And oh yeah. Else. What about you? I I I was I was at church, and we're about five or seven miles from Epicenter, so that's that makes yeah, for an interesting you're, you're ride. Close, yeah. Uh, I was talking with somebody actually in my study and, and we, we were sitting there, I'm sitting behind my desk and she's sitting in one of the chairs that's in front of my desk. And all of a sudden the place starts rumbling. And at first you're trying to sort it out what it's about, but it's getting more and more intense. And I'm watching the water in my fish tank sloshing around. <laughs> and I, I always say this every time I, there's an earthquake, I, I announce it earthquake. And, yeah. and uh, we're looking at each other and I said, well, if this keeps going for much longer, I think we should probably uh, consider going in the hallway or something because I didn't want books to come flying off the shelves oh, yeah, and, yeah. and that. But nothing, nothing happened. We it was kind of a side to side. I'm told the side to side sort of shaking is a lot less destructive than the up and down kind of shaking. Hmm. And so, so it it really was it, it was kind of a an interesting ride, but nothing really. I didn't even spill a drop of fish tank water, so well, it wasn't wasn't, wasn't too bad. I understand people a little bit closer uh, suffered some shelves things on shelves falling off yeah. or brick facades coming down yeah but, i heard some tiles fell off a city hall roof i think uh, in glendora which is right there not too far yeah tile and brick does not manage really yeah. well in this this kind of thing but you know it's 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 these these upheavals in the created order that are part of what paul calls the groanings of creation yeah and that creation is subject to uh, this this entropic uh decay that uh even even nature itself experiences the ramifications of the fall, and uh, the Bible would really have us interpret these things along the line of signs of God's wrath. It's sort of a reminder that that it's not all uh, puppies and kittens in nature, that uh, that the same forces that have pushed up mountains and everything else uh, do shake, rattle, and roll without warning, and can potentially create a lot of destruction. You know that that kind of brings up in my mind the whole issue of communion fellowship and the topic of who should and shouldn't commune and first Corinthians How 11. How on earth do you go oh, from wait, earthquakes I'm somewhere. I'm to going communion somewhere. fellowship? Ride with me on this. Okay. One. This, this is, me, right? this is, this but, is at least a 5.4 in the intellectual <laughs> Richter scale. Okay. But in first Corinthians 11, St. Paul talks about those who are not discerning the body are eating and drinking judgment on themselves. A judgment. Yeah, a judgment on themselves. He says, for this Not reason, damnation, though. Just no, I didn't say damnation. Don't okay. put words in my well, mouth. Well, I'm just, I'm don't, just, don't do I'm, that. I'm no, just I, clarifying. I, 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 <laughs> I'm being proactive, I, as they say. I, okay. So anyway, he says, and so, some have grown sick, and some of, some of you have even fallen asleep or died, as the case may be, uh, because of this. And I, I'm not too convinced that 
this sort of judgment isn't still around. We just managed to put tidy terms and words on it, you know, like heart attack or cancer or or whatever. I, I'm not sure where to go with that exactly, but, you know, this judgment of God still exists. We just have much tidier categories today than, say, 2,000 or 4,000 or 6,000 years ago. We've got scientific terms, but it's still, in, in the long run, the judgment of God because... Sin has brought death and pain and suffering and disease into the world. Yeah, you know, there's a the, see. The I old, brought it back around. Not see bad. How I did that. I'm impressed. Yeah, uh, the, there's an old collect, an old prayer from from some of the older agenda books that pastors would go around with when they visited the sick or something, and and one of them stands out in my mind because I remember this reading this as a child that that it it. Uh, it prays that the person who is sick would receive grace so as to receive thy visitation. Hmm. In other words, this time of sickness was a time of God's visitation and that this was to be considered a gift that that, that uh, God's heavy hand was resting on them, reminding them of their mortality, their sin, their fallenness, and everything else. And so it, it becomes very much a spiritual opportunity. It, it's, it's a moment of repentance and renewal. Hmm. And the, the new colics don't go there so much. We don't like to attribute that sort of stuff to so God. receiving the suffering is a gift. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and that what you described, uh, where, where Paul talks about those, there were those in Corinth who received this judgment, namely that some had become sick and some had even died. Uh, he goes on to say that this this was a preemptive thing. In fact, it was it was an act of really fatherly discipline, so that they would not be condemned along with the world. Which is why yeah. I jumped in on this damnation thing. Yeah, I'll see, but... He took he took a hit out on them. Yeah, so they wouldn't be damned. Well, and sometimes God will do that. I believe is uh, hey, it's better to stomp you out in this life than to have you stomped out for eternity. Well, the 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 wrath side of God is really what we. We really want to duck. We don't want to deal with that. So we'll we'll call it Mother Nature. So you know, right. leave it to us. Blame it on Mom. You know, uh, but it's it's Mother Nature acting up. Or or think about the flood. Whenever the flood story is told in Sunday school or vac- vacation Bible school, it's all this happy story about the arky arky. But it it they, we don't deal with the. We don't deal with the the millions bloated and dead that weren't in the arky arky, and and that's that's God's wrath. And this is that's this is brought out in this this close of the commandments that God punishes the children uh, for the sins of the fathers to three and four generations. But and 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 got to keep going here that He shows mercy or love to a thousand See, generations. That's the payola on the whole thing. There right you go. There. That's the pater. And and notice how His His mercy or His love. The the word there I believe is is the Hebrew chesed, which is a great word because you get to gargle when you say it and everything. But that's that covenant love. He loves because He promised. He promises to love. And and his love or his mercy exceeds his wrath literally thousandfold. And that's the way God works. His grace is greater than our sin. Always. Right. When your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. I, I have a friend who has an interesting way of praying for the, the unbelieving or the lapsed or the uh, just people who just don't really give a rip about God and their salvation. Mm. And because there's usually in, in the prayers of the church, there's something about for those who 
for the unbelieving and for those who have fallen away and etc but but he has this little phrase where where he says something like that god should trouble them relentlessly and create no no you know no shortage of 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 unhappiness in their lives until they recognize that uh that god alone can save them i mean he literally prays that they would be troubled that's a little rough terribly rough but i think it makes the point yeah, well, better to uh, suffer some misery here than suffer for eternity. So that that makes it. You know, speaking of suffering, going back to what you were saying before, that sometimes God visits uh, illness on us to to basically save us in a lot of ways. Early anesthesia, ether was kind of a party drug before it was ever any kind of uh, medical kind of thing at all. And the doctor got got the clue after being at an ether party. <laughs> that hey, you know what those uh, ether parties i'm telling you this this could be kind of interesting just don't if, smoke at one of those things all room is blow up <laughs> but if you put someone under with this stuff they won't remember their surgery and furthermore the pain is diminished and uh, the clergy are the ones who actually got up in arms and they squashed this thing and so anesthesia about, so about 30 years anesthesia had been used uh, and and for about 30 years after that it got put out by the religious folks who said God wants us to suffer, mm. and it's and it's it's ungodly to you know n- not suffer in these surgeries and whatnot. So long as it's not me. Right? <laughs> yeah, you you need to learn a lesson there, Craig. So, uh, well, that's, so I want you to suffer. That's really why God made large bottles of whiskey. This is the yeah. Other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. a classic form of anesthesia. <laughs> Yeah, well, this is that's kind of an example uh, where where you see where you see um, kind of what it really is is kind of a logical misstep. So so God God uses sickness and and pain and things like that uh, as discipline. Therefore, uh, we should just stand out of the way and allow all sickness and pain because hey, that's God's will. Uh, and I think that's forgetting the fact that his his mercy does exceed his wrath by by a thousandfold, and and it's also neglecting the fact that God Himself has done something about all of this, namely that His Son Jesus in the flesh uh, took up our sufferings and our sicknesses and the pain, literally, of our humanity on Himself. And and so I, I think that kind of prescription that you're talking about is is really sort of uh, digging into the hidden mind and will of God and saying, oh, I know what he's got in mind. He wants everybody to suffer. So we have here, we've, I think, pretty well beaten the whole punishing the the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Uh, going back to the thousands of generations of those who love him, what can we make of the rewards or the blessings that he has there? Well, I think you can look both in terms of temporal and eternal. Um, I know sometimes we're a little reticent, especially as Lutherans, to talk about the temporal temporal benefits. But uh, certainly, to live in the way of the commandments is to live blessedly, and and I believe the commandments have both intrinsic rewards and intrinsic punishments. By intrinsic, I mean they just come along for the ride. Hmm. And uh, so, for example, if you live a life in disobedient to parents, disobedience to parents and other authorities, uh, in all likelihood, you won't live long on the earth. Uh, it, when you when you're constantly running afoul of the law, it has a way kind of of wearing away at you after a while. 
Uh, just like if you if you make it a point of uh, anesthetizing yourself with a fifth of uh, Jim Beam or so every night, that will eventually corrode your liver. It's 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 intrinsic in the activity. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if you if you live in obedience to the authorities and if you work uh, to support your neighbor in his life and you lead a sexually pure and chaste life, uh, there, there are rewards even in this life for that in terms of stable family and, uh, and living without fear from the law and, and holding down a steady job and things like that. Uh, this says nothing of eternity, but I think there, there are even the intrinsic uh, rewards that, that go along with living according to the commandments. So it goes back to a cumulative effect of the blessings in each commandment. Well, that's why I like to emphasize the gift, because the, the gift in, in the gift is a blessing. Yeah. And the gift rightly used is a blessing. And the gift wrongly used against God is the nature of evil itself and will bring curses down on our head. And uh, indeed, eternally deserve, our, deserve God's eternal wrath and punishment. So you know, one of the things when you look at the temporal realm is you ought to see it as a kind of a typology of, of, of the eternal realm. Uh, in in other words, that uh, God's wrath temporally is is a warning shot over the starboard bow before the the last day when that becomes an eternal wrath for refusing His gifts. You know, a, a lot of people will hear what we're talking about and kind of misread that also and say, "Oh, okay, so if I keep all the Ten Commandments, then God's going to really bless me and He'll He'll I will prosper." I'll be wealthy, healthy, and wise, and so forth and so on. Uh, that's not necessarily the case either, is it? Well, there, there, there's one thing that's not necessarily the case before that, and that's nobody keeps the commandments. I, I hope if, if, if you and I drummed anything in these, these weeks where we've been going through each of the commandments, is that they, they drive so deeply into our attitudes and our inner thoughts and desires that there is not a single commandment that is kept by the most religious, holy person, even uh, in a single day. If you take a snapshot, just freeze frame your life at any moment, you have run afoul of these commandments. So, so I would say that, that the hypothetical is already out of, out of range. The other thing is, is that um, you have to ask yourself, how does a sinner keep these commandments because it does say he promises grace and every blessing to those who keep these commandments now let's face it the the law the law does promise that he who does them will live yeah that's a good one so so yeah the law has a promise do it and you will live the rich young ruler did them all. Uh, well yeah he thought so until <laughs> until you know jesus went straight for the heart and and that's really i think the misleading thing about the law is that it's doable the, the promise is dangling out there, and if we weren't beset by sin and our sinful condition, uh, you could make something of this. But, but as Paul says in Romans 7, the law plus sin equals death and destruction and, and a body of death and disobedience all over the place. Um, I, I just kind of think of people who will say, well, God gave me the sex drive, so he wants me to use it, and I'm... You know, I don't understand why God would give me a sex drive if he didn't want me to use it. Therefore, I'm going to be promiscuous. I'm going to go out and just abuse these things. But God has given us a sex drive to use it to his glory, not in promiscuity, but in marriage. And so this is kind of a picture of the way that all this is, is that when we are doing things according to God's plan, 
Uh, we are doing things within his design. But the problem is we pervert it all the time. We constantly are perverting what God had in mind, and we're turning it in on ourselves. We're making it about me and not about God anymore. Yeah, from a God-centered perspective, it all works. But from an I-centered perspective, from an egocentric perspective, this doesn't make any sense. See, we know better than God. Okay, so I'm going to throw out the 50-cent word, imputation. Imputation. And and what do you want to impute here? Well, I'm, it's not what I'm imputing. It's what Christ has imputed to us. Ah, okay. Well, you want to go that route? Well, I could. I don't. Were you going somewhere else? Yeah, I was going to start with original sin. Oh, okay. Well, that usually which, shows which, the need for the imputation. Exactly. But, you know, and, and <laughs> since we've been dwelling in the law, that we may as well kind of... I, I think the original sin bundles this all together. And, and I think of original sin two ways. One is it's the original sin, the first sin. Right. It's the one that, that literally corrupts humanity. And so, so as, as I like to say, when Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. When Adam was sentenced to death, we were all sentenced to death in Adam. He's the, the head of humanity. He's the prototype man. Uh, what happens to him happens to us all. But original sin is also the origin of all sins. Right. And this is something I think that's missed with a lot of Christians because they think we're sinners because we commit sins. So if you stop sinning, then you stop being a sinner. But original sin says, no, no, it's a condition that is infallibly passed down from father to child, you know, from father Adam all the way down through the whole human race. And, and it's a condition that gives rise to our sins. So we sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Yes. Yes. Now, with, but, you're, you're looking at me like I was going to say something. But. Well, I was hoping. And and uh, <laughs> I. But see, preach now, it, brother. Now, now, once you get that 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 our humanity is corrupt, there is no righteousness in us, and there's no way that we turned inward on ourselves can rescue ourselves. Now you you've set the stage for how God does it. Right. As He becomes man, He does the law perfectly. You know, he promises grace and every blessing to those who keep these commandments. And now here is a perfect man who keeps these commandments. And in him is found grace and every blessing. So how do we get in on it? We get in on it by, as you put it, the magic word? Imputation. Imputation. He grants it as a gift to us. He declares it to us. He forensically sentences it over our heads right. and says, all that I've done is yours. And all that you've done is now mine, namely your sin. Imputation is basically accrediting to an account. Yeah, you know, imputation so, goes both ways. Or a covering. We like to think of it in terms of, uh, of Christ's righteousness, holiness, perfection being credited to us, and that's true. But there's a flip side to it, too, and that is our sin and our damnation under the law is imputed to him. Right. And it's credited to him, and he willingly takes it to the cross. That's what Luther called in German a freudliche Wechsel, which means a happy exchange or a sweet swap. So he gets our sin and we get his righteousness. The glad exchange there. And I, I guess when everything's said and done, we can't really come to grips with this until we've utterly despaired of ourselves. The, as long as we hold out any hope that we can through self-improvement yeah. or through some pious practices or something, kind of undo this or at least meet God halfway. And that, that's the classic of all semi-Pelagianism, which is most of what happens when Christianity goes bad is you do your part and then God does his part, makes up the difference. Or you try as hard as you can and then God will forgive the rest. 
But where's the focus? The focus is still always on my part. Whether that part is 25% or 95% is almost immaterial because my part is the part that's under my control. Uh, I was at a Pentecostal church once, and uh, the pastor was standing up on the stage, and it was a very elevated stage. It's probably about six feet high. And uh, he had a $10 bill, and he said, uh, Bobby, come up here and grab the $10 bill. And he was holding it way over his head, and Bobby's jumping up and down like a fool. And and uh, he says, see, this this is the way that it is. We can't reach God uh, by jumping up and down. We We can't do this. But God comes down to us and meets us halfway. There it is. <laughs> yeah, that's see, he 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 was on the right road, but he just didn't go all the way. That's Pelagius's weak-eyed cousin named Semi. Yeah, you know, semi-Pelagianism, where where you do your part, God does His part, and together in this cooperative venture, uh, you work it out. You work out your salvation, right. and uh, ultimately, that's going to well, it does two things. One is it draws attention back to you, but even worse, it draws away what Christ has accomplished. Sin ergos, synergy. Uh, sin is together, ergos is work. To and work so working to, together, right. right? Yeah, we call it synergism. In business, that's a great idea. In religion, not such a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> but, but the one that I think for the most part in the world is the prevailing religious opinion. Hey, Bill, you know what? we got to take a break. That's a good idea. We'll be right back. Now live from shaky Southern California, the God Whisperers. That's the fake crowd cheering right there. You're Craig D'Onofrio. I am, and I'm a little demented right now, and you're Bill Swirla. That's right. And, and you're looking is, at me like I'm one weird guy right this now. This is late-breaking God Whisperers. <laughs> we have been looking for an excuse to use that music, and I think the earthquake in Southern California has given me the, the ability to do so. It has a certain Day of the Lord uh, kind of component to it, so <laughs> I like that. I, I think I think the prophet Joel probably would have used that as background music for his his work there. So why why, why would he do that? Oh, the the coming Day of the Lord and the locust oh. locust chomping on everything. Locust, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, Moses would have probably used it too, as he you know wrote about the Exodus <laughs> live from Mount Sinai. <laughs> Okay, so we're talking about the close of the commandments, basically the summary of the commandments. And uh, we need to get into the whole subject of the way that the law works on us, because we're talking about God's law here, but also encompassed in the law is, is the gospel, or, or at least God's blessings, shall I say, rather. And so in this, we need to understand how God works on us with his law. Well, I think actually uh, I would expand it to say how God works on us through both law and gospel, because it's it's always both and. Uh, it's never just one or the other. So so God kills and he makes alive. He uh, drives down. He humbles the exalted and he exalts the humbled. And so it's it's really a both and. And I think this 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 section, whether you're looking at Exodus 20 or the explanation 
uh, really deals in a very difficult concept for people to to grasp, and that is paradox, that mm. God is at once wrathful and merciful. He His wrath is poured out on our sin, and yet he's merciful to sinners. Uh or that he he deals in both command and promise. This is where this is where Luther uh, found a, a pattern throughout, and why you see we should fear and love God so that we don't do this or do that. Uh, that he says God deals with us both according to His command and according to His promise. So he he uh, he threatens wrath on all who transgress His commandments. He promises grace and every blessing to those who keep His commandments. And so it's always a, a law-gospel paradox that we live with. And uh, that kind of crystallized as, as the Christian, the, the believer, being at once a sinner and a saint, a sinner in himself and a saint in Christ. And we live in this paradoxical tension in this life. Yeah, Romans 7 really is a fantastic chapter for this where... St. Paul is lamenting this. That well, actually, 7 and 8, because I, I think if you, don't, if you don't read 8, then you miss who you are in Christ. 7 really deals with who you are in yourself. That's where Paul speaks autobiographically in the wretched man that I am. Yeah. That's in himself. But in, in chapter 8, he talks about those who live according to the Spirit, uh, and he speaks of his life then in Christ. And it's a totally different look. Well, see, now I'm going to take a little exception with what you're saying, because I agree with you that eight follows seven and you need eight as as well. But in seven, he also says, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Thank God Bo- for Jesus, body, right? Body of death. Body of death. Yeah. Whatever. But, Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> I, you and your old King James interpretation there. Who cares what who cares what the Greek you, says? You dog I'm, you dogmaticians who forget what the scriptures <laughs> say. Yeah. Exegetes are always the problem. Yeah, we are a problem. That, yeah. that, that's true. We always yeah. go always go back to those words of scripture. Those are really pesky sometimes. No, you, you know what my problem with exegetes are is is that to do a PhD in exegetical theology, you have to do something unique with the Bible. And after two thousand years, come on. It, what are you gonna do besides destroy it? Or screw it up somehow. So, so instead, you do a PhD in dogmatic theology, and and then then you can just ignore the Bible. <laughs> uh, see, but this is where us historians come in. See, you assume oh, the dogmatics. Histori- I'm history. Oh, historians. Yeah, well, historians <laughs> keep things tidy. Exegetes are more like the the referees that keep the game honest. You know, you, you have to make sure that the, the game is being played honestly here. So, so. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, I got us off. You were talking about this paradox, saint sinner. Uh, mercy and and at the same time um, uh, uh, disciplining us and so forth. You right. Know, the, the 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 dualistic or dichotomy rather. Yeah. Don't go dualistic. No, that would, that I would meant be, to say that dichotomy. Would be and don't say dialectic. A lot of people use that dialectic thing, which gets you right into no, Hegelian philosophy. I don't. I don't say that. And word. a whole matrix. These are not contradictory things that need to be synthesized, but these are these are two truths. Two truths about us. And I think the whole Christian faith is paradoxical. It starts with the two natures of Christ and it goes out from there. Because, you know, Christ himself is a paradox of true God, true man, one person. Yeah. God is a paradox of, of three persons but one essence or being. And, and, and the baptized believer is a paradox of being totally sinner in Adam and totally saint in Christ. See, and then you run into all these problems, and this is where, once again, the dogmaticians become problematic in that, well, if Jesus is God and man, and Jesus clearly limits his knowledge as man, then what's imputed to which, you know, the humanity or the divinity and which nature, and 
Then you end up with all those genera and and, you uh, know, and we're gonna get I'm gonna quiz you away. on that in a couple of a couple of episodes. Gainus myostaticum, yeah. Gainus apitalismaticum, and Gainus idiomaticum. Yeah, well, very nice. Not quite in that order, but very, but very nice. That was good. <laughs> idiomaticum comes first, but oh, okay. But we'll do that in the second article. But the, this idea here that the Christian is simul justus at peccator is, is is simultaneously sinner and saint. And and I would add even to clarify that more sinner in himself as a child of Adam and sinner in Christ mm-hmm. as a born again baptized believer, and so so we have this dual identity or this double identity, and the the question is always in this life is with whom are you going to identify mm-hmm. the old self which is destined to death, or the new self in Christ which is destined to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. So which is it going to be? And and Paul says very clearly with with his mind he serves the law of Christ, that he has the mind of Christ. He wants to do these things, but right. his sinful flesh will not cooperate. Yeah. yeah, and and that's really our experience, unfortunately, in this world. We we want to do good. I think as believers we really desire to do the commandments and to keep them, but at every turn, it's it just doesn't happen. Even our best intentions go awry. You know, in dealing with questions of holiness, uh, sanctification. I, I have found, and I truly believe, you, you may be able to verify or, or not, but I believe that the more sanctified, the more holy you are, the more sinful you see yourself as being. And so I really think that the more sinful you're aware, or, or let, me, let me rephrase it, the more holy we become or the more sanctified we become, the more we're aware of our sin. It's always before us. Whereas if we actually believe that we're doing just fine, we're actually living up to God's law and we're doing okay, there's no sanctification in us whatsoever. There's there's no holiness in us because there's nothing to repent of and there's no Jesus in my life and therefore I don't need him. And so we're filthy, rotten people. Well, yeah, our holiness is not in who we are or what we do. Our holiness is in Christ. Yeah. And and when you're talking about what we call sanctification or holiness in in, in the sort of narrow sense, um, in Christ it's complete. In Christ you are fully holy, pure, perfect, glorified, all these things. In yourself it's anything but complete. Yeah. And and so it depends where you're looking. If you look in Christ, and that's only through faith in the Word of Promise, then you will find your entire whole sanctification complete. You are perfect and holy in Christ. But if you look at yourself, especially in view of the law, as you say, the more attuned you are to the law, the worse you look. Yeah. And Paul said that. He said, I thought I was doing fine. Heard about coveting. And holy smokes, the whole thing just <laughs> all hell broke loose in my life. And and uh, that's true. I have found that the Christians who are that Christians who are most schooled in the law and and who have the most experience in the life, this paradoxical life of repentance. And repentance really means to come to a new mind, a new way of thinking. Hmm. So to so your mind needs to be turned from the old way of Adam to the new way of Christ. But it's a continual turning of the mind. Uh, but but Christians who have a long history of living in this paradox have a profound sense of their sin. Yeah. I, I had a guy in my church in Rhode Island back when I was out there. I wanted him to be an elder. He was a great guy and really had a sense of Christ and, and who he is in Christ. 
And I said, I'd like you to consider being an elder in this church. And he said, I'm not worthy of it. Yeah, no, there's said, somebody. That's exactly why I want you there. <laughs> there's the guy you want. <laughs> right. That's yeah, perfect. Right. And, and, and it's that this notion that, that uh, we are not worthy. There's never a point in this life where we can stand self-justified. Because that's that's precisely the antithesis of being justified, is yeah. to be self-justified. I, I ran into somebody once in one of those inevitable airport conversations, which I avoid like the plague. It's I stopped just, wearing my collar when I travel. Oh, I, I put I my I put my earbuds in my head and I go to sleep, <laughs> and it's like I have leave me alone written all over. I wish clergy could come with uh, like a thing like the buses have, not in service. I <laughs> I, I think that's what what it means when pastors pull their tabs. You know, it's I'm I, I'm out of service, so I'm not stopping for any passengers here. <laughs> but but there's that inevitable spiritual conversation that takes place and and a, a woman uh saying to me that that she's describing her life her ongoing life as a christian since becoming a christian somewhere around the age of 20 or 21 and she was talking about her sanctification and her progress in it and how now at this point in her life she says i i i barely sin anymore wow and Good for her and I just kind of sat there for a bit and I said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, quoting from first John. <laughs> and she kind of sat back. She goes, oh, yeah, the Bible does say that, doesn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, we want to be rethinking that idea that, that, that we're getting over sin now. And it goes back <laughs> to what we talked about in the first hour, that that we are not sinners because we do sinful things. That's the big mistake with the babies. Right. So the people who say, oh, you don't, babies don't need to be baptized. They don't need to be forgiven. They don't need all this stuff because they're innocent. It's missing the point. Yeah, they, they're innocent of any, any actual sins because they, they're kind of clumsy. They can't do anything. Although Augustine in his confessions confesses the sin of crying for no good reason. <laughs> he says, I've observed this in other infants, that they cry when they're wet, they cry when they're hungry, and then sometimes they cry just to see if somebody comes. <laughs> and he says, that was my sin too. Yeah, it's always amazing to me when I talk to people who have kids and still believe in an age of accountability that, you know, Junior isn't really sinful until he's seven years old or something like that. Oh, oh my gosh, haven't you been changing this kid's diapers and dealing with his mouth and you, you screaming and it's all about him i can't remember who said it it doesn't originate with me but somebody has pointed out that original sin is one of the few dogmas that can be demonstrated simply from reading the daily newspaper wow and uh you know we we wonder why humanity is so inhumane and we wonder just just how how people can can intend such great things and then sink to such low depths and it goes back to this this deep inner corruption of our humanity from which we can't free ourselves. And so it's a condition. Every child is conceived and born in this sinful condition, this warped condition. And whether they acted out at any particular time or not is irrelevant. The condition is there. You know, a, a lot of times we hear in churches that sin is missing the mark. And you hear some pastors say, crazy things like oh it's an archery term you know where you're shooting it is. at the Hamartia. target that's that's you missed you missed the target but but you know i'm i'm shooting at it like like i'm trying to be good here but uh, oh i just barely missed kind of thing but sin right. is not that sin is not barely missing oh my attentions were pure but uh you know i just didn't quite do it right well you you have to look at the sin the funny thing about sin is there's no one word that does all the duty 
I think Hebrew has about seven, if I'm not mistaken, and Greek has at least four. Now, hamartia is one of them. That does mean to miss the target. Okay. Uh, but there's also transgression. We know what that's about. That means to cross a line that you shouldn't cross or trespass, things like that. No trespassing. Right. Uh, there's there's a debt, as in the, the Our Father in the, the Greek original, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And the idea that sin has placed us in a very bad position vis-a-vis God. We owe him, and, and we can't pay back. So if someone were to ask you, and what is sin? Not Define even gotten sin. into guilt and iniquity and, and all of these other things. So there's, yeah, a, there, off. there's a whole complex of, of, of stuff. Sin is rebellion against God. There you go. And thought, word, and deed. Yes. Yeah. I, I think, you know, sin is is our our essence in a lot of ways as fallen man. It's, uh, it's uh, a, uh, uh, you, just, it's a, you just did a naughtiness. It's a definition of who we are don't, outside of Christ. Don't say essence in my presence because that, that would make the statement, it's, it's only human to sin. True. Uh, and you know where I'm going to go with that. So who's, well, we weren't created to sin. But, but it's not of our humani- humanity. In the old categories, it's called an accident. It doesn't mean an oops. It means something that doesn't belong there. Like you wouldn't say a measles virus is part of your humanity. Right. It's just, it's accidentally, it's, it's, it's attached to it. So I, I don't... The reason we say that is, is Christ fully bears our humanity without sin. Right, okay. So you can't say to sin is human. No, but to be a fallen man is to be sinful. But you can't make it our essence. Uh, it's accidental I, to our essence. I guess perhaps I was sloppy. You need to go back word. to your philosophy here. This is, yeah, I'm not yeah, terribly you, trained in Eastern thought yeah, like you. Or yeah, you, well, you must have. Well, it's not that. Buddha, I never invited Buddha <laughs> in my heart like some of us. Uh, Aristotle, <laughs> please. <Yeah. laughs> I thought so, you were a dogmatician. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a historian. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the exegete around I'm here. I'm a historian. I, we I don't s- have a dogmatician I here. slum in dogmatics because it's fun, <laughs> but... but uh, it's a lot tidier than exegesis. In, in, in dogmatics, everything's answered. In exegesis, we're not sure about anything. So. I, I'll just tell you the history of how we got our doctrine. I can't tell you much about the doctrine. Yeah, itself. I like I, I like historians. <laughs> they could be non-committal on everything. You just you simply report. It's a gift. So he said this, and they said this, and they once believed this. Well, what do you believe? Well, it doesn't matter. I'm just reporting the facts. No, I tell you the truth. I, I had some history profs that were not good theologians. Good yeah. historians, not good theologians. <laughs> but Anyway, sin is basically every thought, desire, act, uh, anything that is contrary to God's law. How is that for a definition? Sure, or the or the will of God, or or you know, isn't isn't God's will kind of summed up with the law? Yeah, so. or it's 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 the desire to usurp the place of God, to be gods in place of God. Oh, that's that, huge. That was the big temptation. You yeah. can be like God. You can be as God, knowing good and evil. And even Adam said, "Deal, yeah, I'm going for that. That's that's a sure thing. I can I can I can deal with the creation in terms of good and evil. That sounds good to me." Original sin was the first commandment. There's no other gods before they made themselves into a god. Yeah, well, that, that's that's the thing is, is that agnosticism, is, but we could get into that another time. Complete inversion of our humanity, and that's a condition. It's not about what we do. We, condition. Uh, that's what I was meaning to say instead of essence. That's uh, what I was kind of getting at, but. We fixed you. Condition. This Thank is you. good. This Thank is, you. This is instructive. Words may not speak let's, well. Let's let's fix up Craig <laughs> on the air for the instruction of everybody else. I, I, I like this very much. This, this is a lot easier and more fun than blogging, I think. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, unlike the blogosphere, I might be correctable. 
Whereas oh. there, there are others hiding behind screen names that you can't correct. Oh, no, the, the, the blogosphere is just pooled ignorance. Yeah, it's Bubbles 865 <laughs> will never concede to being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Bubbles 865. <laughs> I, a good quote from Martin Marty uh, back, back in the, I keep going back to this this dog-eared book that I have, the the Hidden Discipline, uh, but but he writes this about about the God who shows His wrath. Uh, he says how un-American this God is. <laughs> uh, we had defined the God of the Bible in the comfortable terms we like today. We'd put him on the shelf with other household gods, polished him up, wrapped and packaged him and drawn securely from the fact that he met us on our terms. He loves everybody. He dotes on all his children. And then he goes on to say, Can a man take, take sin seriously if he conceives of God as an overblown man in his dotage, rocking away in an upstairs apartment and tending flower pots in his spare time? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what I, I an think, image! I think that's, that that's, that's really... God is well. No, actually, God is Santa Claus has a lot of teeth. You know, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Yeah. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness' sake. So Santa Claus got a lot of wrath to him. Who, who here hasn't preached that Jesus is better than Santa Claus? Yeah, there, sermon on uh, there you go. Christmas but, Eve. But God, you know, that's the kindly grandfather that just kind of hands out chocolates and dollar bills every time you come over. Right. Uh, just this morning in my Bible class, we were uh, discussing prayer still, and. Uh, we we got onto the passage where uh you know what parent would give his child a scorpion instead of an egg and you know all that and you know how much more gracious is god toward us than we are toward our own children and it's funny we tend to live in a society where we're very indulgent of our children we're very forgiving and we create little monsters and we protect them and we coddle them and we guard them and we keep them from all harm and how dare you say anything bad about my kid by the way when I was a kid, if the teacher said that I was up to something, I just got smacked around first. Oh, yeah. You yeah know, nowadays, and... it's who is that teacher to say that my junior is a monster? I know? lived uh... in mortal fear of the parental conference. <laughs> and I was a pretty good kid. I, I, I really, especially in, in grade school, I, I wanted to obey my teachers. And I, I like getting good grades and stuff. High school, all, all hell broke loose. But but uh, <laughs> But I lived in mortal fear of those parental conferences for the simple reason my parents de facto took the side of my right. teachers. Yeah. And there was no due process of law. There was no, no right to a fair hearing. There, there wasn't even any cross-examination. You just got smacked when he came <laughs> home. <laughs> but anyway, in our culture today, <laughs> we tend to be uh, very indulgent of our children. We tend to be very uh, guarding and protective and so forth and so on. Yet so many times we tend to have a God in our mind that's angry vengeful, wrathful, boy, you cross that line once and you're going to hell or uh, your leg's going to fall off or, you know, you're going to get pinned under a car or, you know, something terrible is going to happen because you did one thing wrong. But how much more gracious is God? He sends his only son to die in our place because of crimes that we committed. That's how gracious he is toward us. And yet we we dare have these stupid views of his anger and wrath and and all of that. Well, I don't think they're stupid. I I, I would I'm gonna I'm gonna modify that a little bit. Is there are ways of dealing with God apart from Christ, and then there are ways of dealing with God in Christ. Now, yes, God loves the world in His Son. It's it's kind of a commonplace. Let me wax exegetical for a second. Uh-huh. That John three sixteen passage. Wake up! Is is God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son? It doesn't mean that God loved the world a whole heck of a lot. 
or this much. But it's God loved the world in this way, thusly, that he sent his only begotten son. Right. The yeah. only place, and I'm using place kind of metaphorically here, but the only place in which God is love, and you see God in his loving essence, is in his son, Jesus Christ. If you want to deal with God apart from the Son, then you will deal with the very God you described, a God of wrath who demands perfection down to the very least stroke of the law. And if you fail, you're going to get all hell for it. That's fair enough. But God still loved those people enough to give his only son for them, too. They're loved in Christ. Yeah. Every single every single. A person in all of humanity back to Adam and Eve and to the last baby born in the last day of the last the last second of the last day is loved in the beloved son yeah. is loved in Christ. But I, I think it's imperative in all, in all of this, especially to get the exclusive nature of Christianity out, that that love of God is found only in Christ Jesus, the son. OK, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, though, let me rephrase that. It's stupid to have that view. For those of us who are in Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you hear all the rapture talk and everything else. Boy, if, you, if, if you're a carnal Christian, you're going to be left behind. I love that term, carnal Christian. Carnal Christian. Who here isn't a carnal Christian? That's right. Raise your hand. Yeah. No, no one's raising their hand. I, as long as I got some flesh to pinch, <laughs> I am a carnal Christian. <laughs> and to say you're not a carnal Christian is a sin because that goes back to... To say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Right, and <laughs> but that's that that's that weird business of carnal and spiritual. Yeah, and somehow spiritual, you are transcending what your your carnus, your flesh. You know, that's getting gnostic. Now. Yeah, well, that takes us back to that Neoplatonism and all that good stuff. And that's why I, that's why I'm going to be insistent that you read, read Romans seven and eight together, because Romans seven is Paul as carnal Christian in the flesh. And Paul Romans eight is Paul as spiritual Christian I in Christ. I, I agree. And I don't disagree. Both and not either or, or once I was this, but now I'm this. So Watch you know. this. I'm going to do a little exegetical thing here. Dun, 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 <laughs> da, dun, da, dun, Back in the day ba-dum, when ba-dum, the Bible was ba-dum, originally written, ba-dum. there were no chapter breaks. There were no verse breaks. There was no chapter seven or eight. It was just a letter. Awesome. See, that was my exegetical thing there. Nice. So, so nice. there is no seven or eight in reality. It's just the letter from well, St. Paul. Yeah, you ought to read the whole letter in its yeah. entirety. Yeah, you, you don't just read part of a letter and say, well, that's what, the, there's the news. You know, I, I read page five, and that's what it's all about. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the chapter numbers and, and the verse numbers were, were basically d- devised for preachers so they could take, take one verse and make it a pretext for the text they really want to talk about and just kind of move on from there. Well, I, I yeah, that's one of the... Oh, did I, I must have hit a raw nerve. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's, that is what you do, isn't but, it? Oh, well, of course, I, yeah. I walk into the pulpit with an agenda every week, but hopefully that agenda is usually proclaiming Christ. An historic and dogmatic agenda. <laughs> By the way, dogma makes for terrible preaching. You know, that... Oh, that yeah. uh, There's no greater way to kill the gospel than to preach it as doctrine. Okay, what if you're preaching the catechism? Even so. Even so. Uh, Preaching has to to get to the for you point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, otherwise you're just talking about it. So talking about doctrines like discussing the the studs in the wall or something like that. It better be there, otherwise that wall is going to fall over. But that's that's not the be-all and end-all here. You know, I had this question not too long ago. Uh, how do you gauge your success as a pastor? 
And a lot of people, oh, my numbers, my this, my How that. many people I offend in a given day. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my answer is, if I can go home, look myself in the eye on Sunday afternoon and say, I proclaim Christ crucified for sinners today, it was a good day. And I handed out the body and blood of Christ for their forgiveness. That's a successful day. Hard to go wrong with a day like that. If the gospel of Jesus gets pinned in their ears and the body and blood of Christ goes into their mouths, you have had a successful day as a pastor. I am a wonderful minister on that day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Monday, it starts to fall apart again. Now, six days a week, not so much. You know, I think the only reason Monday goes bad is it doesn't have a liturgy like Sunday does. (laughs) At least Sunday, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. On Monday, it's not so clear anymore. Okay, back to the law, and and so I'm trying to remember. Did we even get into the three uses of the law very much? Be good to we we you know we talked about it at the very beginning, but I think it's good to wrap it up here at the end again because we've been talking a lot about the gift in the law, and the right use of the gift, the misuse of the gift, and the law really as a curb and a mirror and a guide. And all of these are operative all the time. They're not something that we switch one back forth right, to another. Right. And and we recognize that we need to be curbed. We're natural-born sinners. We're anarchists. We're self-centered. Um, we need uh, we need guidance because we are still carnal Christians. Yep. We are in the flesh. And that old Adam, he he has bad reflexes. He you, just just does not get it. You know what slows me down on the freeway? Cops. That's, that's what that's the first use. Yeah. Yeah, the fear the fear of the ticket. That's yeah. what slows me down. Well, that's it. Way. And and yeah, the same the same fourth commandment might instruct you and say it's a piece of holy work to obey the traffic laws. Who would have thunk it? <laughs> but then ultimately finally it's it is that mirror where it, where we not only see our outward acts but we we get a look at our inner self. You know, remember that uh, what was it the picture of Dorian Gray where he cuts some kind of deal yeah. with he's got a cell, he's got a portrait up in the attic. And, and, and he leads this dissolute life of drunkenness and womanizing and everything. But all the effects go on to the picture. Right. And then he, he goes up years later and wants to grab a sneak peek at what he looks like. Because he's, he's looking fine. He's looking good. Yeah, he's and eternally he's dr- 30. driven to madness by, by the view of his sin. Yeah, the accumula- some sort of monster there. Yeah, and that's the, that's the law's mirror. Yeah. It, it, shows, it shows the inner monster. And so uh, we, we have to... Uh, just realize that that whenever we're dealing with the law, we're always being curbed, we're we're always being guided, and and we're always having our sin mirrored back into our face, so that we know what we're saved from and know where to flee, namely to Christ. And in Christ, the whole law is fulfilled. That's if we don't get there, we aren't Christians. No, that that in Christ is the telos, the end of the law, so that all who believe may be justified, and so so Christ is. The fulfillment of the law, uh, he keeps the law perfectly. He takes up the punishments of the law, and in him we are perfect in the law by his imputed righteousness. That's that's the the whole nature of Christianity. I, I love that verse in Galatians three that says, "Those of you who have been baptized have put on Christ Jesus," and we are wearing Jesus as Christians. We we actually have him coding us. I really wish that the translators would would have gone with the passive on that because they could have. Yeah. For as many of you has been baptized Is into Christ. Is it passive Christ, in the Greek? Uh, it's a, it's one of these middles that go Ooh, either way. Yeah. As many of you has been baptized have been baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ yeah. would have sounded so much more gospel than say have clothed yourselves or have put on Christ. I've always wished that it said that also. But it does. It can it, because it's one of those middle passives. You can go either way. It's funny how translators want. A lot of times translators want to get our little bit back into yeah, it again. Yeah, Well, that's too bad. But 
Learn moral, Greek. The moral of this: Learn I Greek. know Greek. I, I just I, every, I'm lazy. Every layman, every laywoman ought to know Greek. <laughs> I, I think so. And you can learn Greek online. Uh, the, there's a Concordia Greek course at iTunes. You don't want to end there, though. No, do you? no, I don't. I want to. I want to finish my thought here. Is that we're coated with Christ and Jesus, or we're coated with Jesus and His righteousness, and in that we can't go wrong. Gotta go.